The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. If you have your Bible, please open to Luke chapter 2. We're finishing or completing our series this Advent and the songs of Advent. And uh, really what we did was just look through uh, a familiar passage, a familiar several sets of passage of the birth narrative of Jesus in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and focused on the praise uh, and the songs and the prayers that were prayed and sung by the members of the narrative here, the, the, the cast, as it were. So remember, we, we saw in the first week this, the song and the prayer of Zechariah as the birth of his son, John, would usher in sort of the new unfolding plan of God's glory who would, who would point to Christ, his own cousin. And then, of course, Mary's song, that Magnificat, which magnifies the Lord and focusing on the joy she has in God for all that he is and does for her. And last week on the shepherds and the angels and their song of glory to God in the highest and we're in it now just a, a few months after the birth of Christ, but in the temple where Mary and Joseph go to visit to do what they need to do according to law. And we run into some characters, Simeon and, of course, uh, Anna, uh, and focus, of course, today on Simeon's song and his prayer and his praise. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. I want to first, though, begin with prayer for many of our, our members who are sick, we're dealing with, with kids who are sick, and of course others who are traveling for the holidays and visiting family. So let's take a moment to pray for them, that the Spirit would comfort them and encourage them, uh, that they would trust in the Lord as they heal and rest, um, and that they would find time to celebrate the birth of Christ with family. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the gathering of your saints. We are, we're so grateful that we get to mark this morning not just as we do with every Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, the celebration of the work of Christ and the celebration of Christ, but a specific Sunday which we set aside to remember and celebrate the birth of Christ, the advent, His appearing, and the, the beginning of, of all that was planned from before time, unfolding and fulfilled in Christ and continuing to unfold and be fulfilled in Him even today. We pray for many of those who are sick, I'm thinking particularly of uh, Jake and of Amy and the kids. We pray that you would heal them and encourage them as they rest and recover at home. Uh, we pray for the others who are traveling, that they would be safe, that they would be encouraged by the gathering of their family together, that they may even gather with their family in another place with saints that are doing much as we're doing. And we pray, God, that you would encourage those who this Christmas season are weary from a long year, who are well, desperate for love and to be accepted and known, we pray, God, that in some small way that you would use our church to encourage those saints and that they would know that you have made yourself known to them. So we pray that you would encourage even them now. As always, God, we give you the glory and pray for our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 2, verses 22. Through 38. This is after the birth of Jesus. Let me read. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that is Mary and Joseph, brought him up, that is Jesus, 
to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said, To Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him, Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. The birth of Jesus causes many to consider the Christmas story. History, as we all know, is divided along this very event. We mark time by the birth of Jesus. We count up from when we estimate he was born. We live in the year 2023, the year of our Lord. That's because the birth of Jesus is a significant event. Whether you accept it as true or myth, whether we believe it as fact, or like the rest of the world, a fairy tale which is quaint and helps us live morally, but not something to believe wholeheartedly, it is still to be accepted as an event by which we order our lives, our seasons, our calendars. Everyone, Christians and non-Christians alike, are often given the opportunity during this season to consider Jesus. Consider the story. Consider the purpose of his birth. Consider his ministry, his life. To consider what he has taught and commanded. To consider the teachings of the church. To consider whether this thing is real and for them and what God may have for their life. I think a key verse in our text is verse 35. Look at it again. What the... The, the, the old man Simeon says to Mary that Jesus' life and ministry will be so significant 
that many will rise and fall. In other words, he would become a stumbling block to many, but others he would be the hope of their salvation. And in the consideration of this man, because of him, the birth of Jesus will cause thoughts from many hearts to be revealed. Both Jew and Gentile will have to contend with the claims of Jesus. And because of his ministry, because of the birth of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, the work of the church through the Spirit, all of this will cause many hearts and the thoughts of those hearts to be revealed before the Lord and to others. Or in other words, the advent of Jesus, his appearing, will lay bare our true desires and affections. It will make what is in our heart known to others. That's the effect that the birth of Jesus has when one truly considers it. Now many, of course, go through the holiday season without any consideration of Christ, His birth, His life, His death. They think little of Him. And that's to be expected in a world that is filled with consumerism and materialism and telling them the Christmas season is about fulfillment of your greatest desires of treating yourself and of family and the greatest gifts of happiness when the songs we sing during Christmas have little to do with Jesus and all having to do with good cheer and family and Santa. And we may delight in those songs on our own. But when we deeply consider the person of Jesus and we take the opportunity in our calendar season, regardless of whether we believe he was born in December or not, most assuredly he wasn't, when we consider him, our hearts are laid bare. This is what Simeon means when he says that because of the birth of Jesus, thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. The advent of Jesus will lay bare our true desires and our affections before God. And when we consider his person and his work, that is, who he is and what he's done, what is our response? What is the response of those who consider Christ? Simeon declares that this child will prove to be a stumbling block to many, but a source of great comfort to others. It says he was waiting for the consolation, the comfort of Israel. So what we're going to do this morning is examine our own hearts to see where our response to the due consideration of Jesus might be wanting. This is what Luke is doing in the record of the narrative of Jesus' birth as he records their trip to Nazareth, from Nazareth to Bethlehem when they record the birth of Jesus, when he records them going to the temple, when he records the circumcision, when he records Jesus' life and ministry. He wants us to consider Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of David, the promised one who would come. And we should, like looking in a mirror, examine ourselves and ask, is our response to this Christ lacking? Or are we responding rightly, properly? And so we look to Mary and Joseph, to Simeon and to Anna as right respondents to the glory and the birth of Jesus. Particularly what we'll do is look at the five characteristics or qualities of the character that is possessed by those who are most assured in the advent of Christ. Those who are deeply convinced of or desire to be convinced of and moved by the birth of Jesus, who are looking at Christ and considering him. Is he real? Is he the son of God? 
Has he taken on flesh? Did he become a man for my sin? Those who deeply consider the work and the person of Jesus and respond rightly, we will consider the five characteristics of those who are most assured by the advent of Christ. Children, if you're writing these down, there will be five of them. And if you need help, ask your parents how to spell them. The first characteristic of those most assured by the advent of Christ is that they are humble. They are humble. See, Mary and Joseph, we learned, come to the temple according to the law of Moses. And they were to do this because in the Old Testament law, in Leviticus, there is a prescription for after a woman gives birth, she has to wait a certain amount of time and then come to the temple to be purified by offering to the Lord. We don't have time to get into the reasons why, but here Joseph also must come and purify himself, probably because he was more involved in the birth of his son than he otherwise would be because of the circumstances of Jesus' birth. No midwives in a manger. And they were to come to the temple after the time of purification was ended to offer an offering to the Lord. Particularly, they were to offer a lamb. But if you were poor and couldn't afford a lamb, you could offer, the provision was, some turtle doves or some pigeons. And we see here that Mary and Joseph, they were not able to afford a lamb, bringing instead a pair of doves or two young pigeons to offer to the Lord. But we see the humility in Mary and Joseph's life because instead of the shame and the embarrassment that a proud heart would certainly experience because they couldn't afford the best, they worship instead in assurance. They worship in assurance and conviction with confidence, knowing actually that the child that they present to the Lord, he is the true offering of God. That God had provided Jesus as a sin offering for the world. And so they can come humbly with the offering that's provisioned for the poorest of the poor would cost maybe a penny so that they could purify themselves and obey the word and the law of God. But they knew that they came with much more than doves or pigeons, much more than gold or frankincense or myrrh that the Magi would bring. No, they came to offer whatever they had in their humble means in their son to the Lord. This child they present to God is the true offering. So they weren't embarrassed or shamed by the fact that they had nothing. They were confident and assured of the birth of Christ that this is the Son of God, the true Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. One of the things I want us to think about is the humility of Mary and Joseph and how it relates to our own experience in worshiping coming before the Lord. Because I think often the most sincere worship, the most genuine worship from our hearts comes from a place of humility. In fact, I want to suggest that it only can come from a place of humility. Sincere worship can't come or flow from a proud heart, can it? Pride is the worship of self. It's the placing of self above others, even in the place of God. This is idolatry, and all sin flows from pride, the sin of pride. And so the sincere worship from a sincere heart flows from a heart which is humble before the Lord, not proud, not boastful in its flesh, 
not standing on its laurels, not bragging about what it can bring or offer to the Lord, but often empty-handed or with the bare minimum, like the widow's mite or the poor offering of a dove, the place of humility. Just consider how the display of the humility here by Mary and Joseph and even Simeon and Anna can relate and be relevant to you. There's, there's three ways in which we see the humility expressed here. We'll just consider first Mary and Joseph's own station in life and consider your station in life. You may not be where you thought you would be at this point or where you'd like to be. You may have less in your bank account than you had hoped or would like. You may not have the cars. You may not have the house. You may not even have the family that you desire. You may not have the job you like. You may not live in the place you love. You may not have the neighbors you always dreamed of having. Even your marriage might be strained or stressed at times. Your kids might often be pushing back against your direction and discipline. Your friends might be somewhat flaky. Whatever your station is in life, you can consider this an opportunity to grow in humility because you know that it is not what you offer to the Lord which makes you worthy, but it is your humility to welcome by the Lord's hand all that He has given you and to accept by the Lord's hands all that He has not which commends you to the Lord. He will say elsewhere in the Old Testament that he does not delight in the blood of bulls and rams. It's not the sacrifice itself which is important, but the offering of a contrite heart. Contrite means broken, humble. Understanding that your station in life does not give you any more access to God. The rich are no closer to God than the poor. In fact, if we're to really consider Jesus' words, we might be weary of the fact that the rich may even stand a foot further from the Lord. Your station in life is an opportunity for you to be humble, even if you are well off, and by God's grace you have many of the comforts and securities that this world may offer. You are still not commended by that station. So even those who are well off, rich, wealthy, provided for, can find in their own station an opportunity for humility to come before the Lord and say, this is not what I offer that makes me commendable before the Lord, but it is the heart with which I offer it. Or consider Simeon and Anna. We read that they are very old in age, 84. we got a few older folks here, but none of them are 84 as far as I know. They're old. They're wise. They've been around for a while. And you may know perhaps your own parents or your grandparents at this age are often humble in form, aren't they? Their bodies now are frail. They need help getting out of their vehicles or in and out of places. If you live in a place with stairs, often you have to help your grandparents up the stairs. Perhaps you push them around in a wheelchair or they use a cane. The body itself becomes feeble and frail. Society begins to look down on the older saints and the older people around them as less worthy. But the humility of Anna and Simeon means that they come before the Lord not dismissed because of their age. Even in a culture that elevates and honors those who are older, the elders among them, they often still are cast aside. Our age, whether you're young whether you feel like you should be more advanced in years than you really are, or whether you're getting up there in age, 
again, does it make you more or less acceptable to God? As a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, you may be more welcomed than a prideful 80-year-old. Your age, your youthfulness, or your elderliness, and everything in between is an opportunity to humble yourself before the Lord. Just as your station in life does not commend you to God, neither does your ability to vote or drive a car or rent a car, which is oddly two different years. It doesn't matter if you can technically run for president or can retire. It doesn't matter if you're a child, a parent, a grandparent. What matters, of course, is the humility of the heart with which you come before the Lord. And then lastly, consider even Anna specifically. She's widowed. Not only is she older and advanced in age, it says, and probably because of that, somewhat destitute, probably poor, but she is now single. She has no one to care for her. It is the community's role now to take care of the widow as it is even the churches today. But even your marital status does not commend you before the Lord. It is an opportunity to be humble before God. Again, the married are no more closer to God. They are no more sanctified than those who are single and not yet married. They are no more complete in the image of God than any man or woman who is not married. We could see that the opportunities in your own life for humility means that you can come and say, the Lord has given me or the Lord has not given me all that I need to come before him. So the first characteristic of those who are assured by the, the, the advent of Christ is that they are humble. Now, what does it mean to be humble? What, is it, what does humility really mean? I think as one pastor put it helpfully, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In other words, humility is a disposition of the heart that does not cling to self-importance or self-pride or self-flattery, but is delighted to be in a place of service and submission to others and especially God. That's what biblical humility is, and I'll say it so you can write it down and pray that it would be yours. Humility is the disposition of the heart that does not cling to self-importance, pride, or flattery, but is delighted by a place of service and submission to others, specifically to God. Friends, oh, that we might worship God with humble hearts, sincerely, genuinely humble hearts, like Mary and Joseph, who gives birth to their firstborn son in a manger, who comes to the temple to purify themselves in obedience to the Lord with nothing but what the smallest amount of money can buy like Simeon or Anna, advanced in age, looked down on by society, or perhaps with little themselves. Anna, who has suffered the loss of a, of a husband and a loved one, who has widowed herself, can come before God, not because they have anything impressive to offer, but because they are humble before the Lord. Not only are they humble, but the second characteristic is that they are righteous. Specifically, we see that Simeon is described as righteous. And he says that there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. And Simeon is described as righteous and devout. He's righteous. Now, by righteous, of course, I mean at least two things here. 
First, I mean that he was obedient to God's commands. And secondly, he was led by the Spirit. Of course, this applies to Anna and to Mary and Joseph as well. But to be righteous does not mean that you are perfect, that you do everything right all the time. Righteous means, firstly, that you are obedient to God's commands. Mary and Joseph, they come to fulfill the law. The law said that after you gave birth, after a season of purification, you come and make an offering to God. For the first son that you have, you must come and present him to the Lord, that the Lord may use him and set him aside for the purposes and the ministry that God would have. You are to come to the temple to worship and to make your offering around this time. God's commands are a delight to God's people who are desirous not only to be humble, but to be righteous. And so Simeon, it says, was righteous in this way. Mary and Joseph were righteous in that they knew the commands of the Lord upon them. They knew that God was working in their midst, and they said, I'm not going to shirk the responsibility that is mine as a member of God's family. To be righteous, then, means firstly to be obedient to God's commands. I hope that all of us long to be righteous men and women. Well, righteousness begins with first understanding what the Lord demands of us. I don't mean perfection, for none of us will obtain that this side of heaven. I mean what the Lord demands us and calls on us to do, we faithfully and obediently do. But the second aspect of righteousness, in addition to the obedience to God's commands, is that they are led by the Spirit. To be righteous means you are walking in step with the Spirit God gives. It says that in verse 25, not only was he righteous and devout, waiting on the consolation of Israel, but Simeon had the Holy Spirit upon him, and it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And then he came, verse 27, in the Spirit into the temple to come and see Jesus. Simeon was righteous not only because he was obedient to the command of God, but because he was led by the Spirit. He understood the assignment. As the Lord leads, so he walks. Being led by the Spirit and obedience to God are both two sides of the same coin. To be righteous. In fact, we see that the Spirit himself leads us into obedience, doesn't he? When your flesh pushes against obedience, what you know you should do, what is it that pushes you further into faithfulness? Is it your willpower? Is it the sheer determination to do everything right all the time? Or is it the Spirit's prompting? Is it the Spirit's power, encouragement, and conviction to say no to sin and temptation, to overcome that snare, and to walk faithfully? Paul will set aside chapters in his own epistles to talk about how important the Spirit is to the Christian's life, to walk in the Spirit, in light of the gospel, to trust the Spirit's leading, to be a Christian means to be led by the Spirit. And those who are led by the Spirit then obey the commands of Christ. And so we see that these members here of Mary and Joseph of Simonana, not only were they humble and righteous, but now thirdly, they are devout. Again, Simeon, of course, is called devout, but we see the devotion here of Mary and Joseph and Anna herself. Devout simply means devoted, and devotion is more than just a commitment. I'm going to show up every time at the same place in the same way. Devotion is a sacred and a solemn commitment 
that one makes to another. Jesus was to be offered to God, devoted or consecrated to God for his purposes. Simeon was devoted and committed to God and his purposes. Anna lived in the temple. She was devoted to his purposes. There is a sacred and a solemn commitment that fuels and fills our devotion as Christians. And those who deeply consider the birth of Jesus recognize the demand upon them to devote themselves to this person. If he is the Messiah, if he is the Christ, if he is the Son of God in flesh, then he deserves nothing less than our sacred and sincere devotion. In other words, we can say that they were devoted and they were not to be thrown off their worship. They knew they must go to the temple. They knew that they must come to pray and offer. The inconveniences of traveling in those days did not persuade them to not come. Traveling with a child, have you ever done it? Not fun. But they didn't even have a car seat. Presumably Mary on a donkey or a camel holding baby Jesus from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to the temple. Crowds of people, lots of noise, smells. No, no inconvenience threw them off their worship or dissuaded them from honoring and obeying the Lord. They were devoted and therefore nothing would stop them. We consider the devotion of Simeon and his faithfulness and his righteousness to walk in step with the Spirit and his frailty of old age and Anna and the frailty of her old age to come before God in the temple, see and worship God for all that he has done and the blessing and the benefit of seeing Christ the Messiah there with their own eyes. All of their commitment, all of their, we can call it sacrifice, is paid off in the moment they get to lay eyes on Jesus. I wonder if we consider the inconveniences that we take on to come to church or to meet with each other regularly or to get up early to read the Bible or to stay up later to, to pray, if we would count those inconveniences worth it for the thing that we get to be a part of. I know that at times we don't. I know that because I don't. I know that because most Sundays I convince my child that it's good to come to church and not just play or read all the time. But how easily is our devotion put in jeopardy for the the most trivial of matters, for the smallest of inconveniences. If you consider the birth of Jesus rightly, then the inconvenience to come and worship Him, whether it's at this church or another church, whether it's at a Bible study or whether it's just with a few friends, should be easily welcomed. Now, we're not masochists. We don't go out and try to make things as hard as possible to prove our faith. We recognize that it's worth it. It's worth it to gather it's worth it, worth it to sing. It's, it's worth it to come and ask and give whatever the Lord asks so that we may give to God our sincere devotion. In fact, we can take the combination of righteousness, that earlier quality, and of devotion, the one we're speaking of now. The combination of this is what was once called piety, which is really the kind of character that brings with it reverence. You know someone who's very pious? Now, typically we think of piety and piousness as something that's sort of puritanical, right? Somebody who's rigid and not very fun. But the reality is piety is a devotion to righteousness that is reverent. There is an honor. There is a 
a commitment that goes beyond just obedience. It comes out of delight, not out of duty. So the character of those who are most assured by the advent of Christ, first, humble, secondly, righteous, third, they are devout, and fourth, they are patient. We see a lot of talk about waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were so excited to see Jesus because finally the waiting here was over. And what were they waiting for? Verse 25 of Simeon, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Or in verse 38, Anna was preaching to those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. But of course, it was not a what that they were waiting for, but a who, right? The what they were waiting for, this consolation, this comfort, this redemption, is not accomplished by a what, but by a who. And the nature of waiting, the nature of Simeon's waiting, the nature of Anna's waiting, is colored by their devotion. You see how all the qualities come together for those who seriously consider the advent of Christ. Their, their devotion, their righteousness, their patience and humility colors the nature of their waiting before the Lord. Who knows how long it had been since Simeon received the revelation by the Spirit that he would see Christ. It might have been 30 years before. He might have been a young child. And he would stay near the temple day after day, week after week, year after year, coming. Is this the day? Will Jesus come? Will there be the Messiah? His devotion, his righteousness, his humility, led by the Spirit, drew him to be patient. And his patience is not just a wait, as I tell my kids, waiting with a good attitude. But it was a, a patience that was filled with anticipation and an expectancy. Something was going to happen. He knew it. It wasn't just wait and maybe something might happen. But the Lord told him, and it will. There's an anticipation and an expectancy that fills their waiting. In the Old Testament, we see that the saints were often called to wait. In fact, they're said, wait upon the Lord over and over and over again. Here's just a small selection of the Psalms themselves. Psalm 25, 3. Indeed, none who wait for you, Lord, shall be put to shame. But the owl shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Psalm 25, 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Psalm 25, again, verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 31, verse 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Psalm 33, verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord, for He is our help and our shield. Psalm 62, verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. They sing these psalms, pray these psalms, trusting that the patience is well worth the wait. Of course, waiting requires a degree of endurance, doesn't it? It requires a degree of patiently, longingly, waiting out whatever may come, however long it may be, whatever obstacles may be in the way. And this is why you need both righteousness and devotion and humility to wait the way the Lord calls us to wait. Biblical waiting upon the Lord requires a degree of endurance because we do not live in a culture that is fond of waiting. How quickly do we receive our food when we order it at a restaurant? 
How quickly do we find the answer to the question when we pull out our smartphone, for those of you who have one? How quickly do we see, receive, and get whatever we want when we want it? Missing something in your house? Go on Amazon. It's there the next day. We live in a culture of instant gratification, and this is great. No one wants to travel seven days to go 20 miles. But waiting often teaches us a degree of endurance and patience that we often lose when we live in a world that's constantly filled with instant gratification. Therefore, to endure waiting, waiting on Christ, waiting on God's plans and purposes to be revealed in our life, waiting on the purposes of God to come for fulfillment in our life, it requires a degree of endurance, and endurance requires strength. For those who are strong can endure. Our strength, of course, is tied to our waiting. There is a delight in the waiting because we are strong as we do so. In fact, in the same chapter of Isaiah, which Luke is almost certainly referencing here when he speaks of the consolation of Israel, we're exhorted to wait upon the Lord this way. In Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people. That's what consolation means. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is the consolation Simeon was waiting on. This is the redemption that Anna speaks is now here. But Isaiah continues to go on. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Well, have you not known and have you not heard the Lord is everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth, that he does not grow faint or weary, that his understanding is unsearchable? For he gives power to the faint, and to him who has might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In fact, waiting on the Lord is how you grow in strength, and your growth in strength allows you to wait more patiently upon the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of how God intends for the Christian to live. We look at someone like Simeon and Anna, and we consider how does patient, enduring waiting look in their life? How did this tangibly look for Simeon and for Anna? Well, Simeon's patience, of course, was fueled by a trust in God's promise. He was told he would see the Messiah before he dies. Whenever he received the promise, however far back before it was, he patiently trusted in the promise until the Lord delivered. Anna's patience was fueled by a habit of godly prayer. Look at what it says in verse 36, that she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. Now, of course, Simeon, I'm sure, prayed. And I'm sure Anna trusted in the Lord's promise. But Simeon is marked by a trust in God's promise because the Spirit said the Messiah would come in his lifetime. And Anna's patience was sustained by regular fasting and prayers, fueled by this habit of godly prayer. When we consider the birth of Jesus and recognize that we too should see not only an opportunity for humility and of righteousness and devotion, but we should grow in patience, that we would trust in the promise of God, 
Not only because we know it has been fulfilled in Christ, but because there are promises yet to be fulfilled, which he said would come. And we are sustained in our waiting and in our patience by prayer. Again, the Spirit helps us here. That even in our prayer, we are carried by the Spirit. And in our waiting, our strength is renewed like the eagles. We trust, we pray, and we wait faithfully. The last characteristic of those who have, upon a due consideration of the advent of Christ and His appearing, is that they are joyful. They are joyful. When Simeon sees Jesus, he picks him up. I'm sure their boundaries are a little different than ours. I think, you know, we don't want to just grab children and pick them up and be thankful for them without permission anyway. Simeon runs, grabs Jesus. Now I can depart in peace. He says, now I, now I can die. For my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Anna, upon seeing, hearing, and knowing of the good news that Jesus is here, she begins to praise God and tell others about it. So three things we can learn about the joy of those who understand rightly the birth of Jesus, the right response of those who are joyful to the birth of Jesus, is that firstly, joy moves us to embrace Jesus. Joy should move us to embrace Jesus. Just as Simeon was moved to take him up in his arms, so we should be moved to run to Jesus and embrace him as our Savior. He says salvation of the Lord is here as he looks the child just a few months old in the eyes. Joy moves us to embrace Jesus. If you want to have a joyful life, take steps in devotion and faithfulness to Christ. Read his words. Study his commands. Learn about his life. Contemplate his suffering and his death. Celebrate the resurrection. Talk about him. Think about him. Learn about him. Embrace him as your own. Hold him, as it were, in your own arms of faith. Their joy will spring. And the deeper you learn and the harder you embrace Christ, the greater your joy will be. And the further you come to embrace him. Secondly, joy moves us to celebrate Jesus. We embrace and celebrate Jesus because of our joy. Just as Simeon and Anna, they bless God for him. We sing and we celebrate and we praise God because of Jesus. We should celebrate Jesus. We celebrate Jesus every Lord's Day. When we gather, we celebrate Jesus every day, for instance. But we take moments out of the season and out of the calendar to recognize that Jesus is worthy, uniquely worthy. So Christmas and Easter and much more, we come to celebrate Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And we do so because it renews and strengthens our joy. And in joy, we can celebrate him. Of course, we can only celebrate that which we delight in. And so we grow our delight in Christ and therefore grow in our devotion and celebration. So joy moves us to embrace Jesus, moves us to celebrate Jesus. And lastly, joy moves us to proclaim Jesus. We proclaim Jesus just as Anna did. He declared, she declared to those around her that Jesus was the hope that they'd been waiting for. Verse 38, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him, that is Jesus, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the hope. Here he is, the redemption, the consolation of Israel. He's here. Everyone who's waiting and longing, the wait is over. In joy, we're moved to tell others about Jesus. 
not simply to embrace him privately or to celebrate him in our churches or homes, windows and doors shut, but we proclaim Jesus from the rooftops. We go, as it has been said, to tell it on the mountains that Jesus Christ is Lord. We must open our mouths with great joy and declare that the hope and the light of the world is here. Of course, all of this we must do in light of Jesus' first advent, the appearing, the birth of Jesus. But this we must still do in light of his suffering. We proclaim and embrace and celebrate Jesus because he suffered for us. See, Simeon, again, understood that to see Jesus was to see God's salvation. That's what he says in verse 30. And yet this salvation that he saw as he held the child in his arms, he knew would only be accomplished through suffering. So he says, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that many thoughts, the thoughts for many hearts would be revealed. This would be accomplished through suffering and not our own suffering. We did not atone for our own sin but salvation is accomplished through the suffering of Christ himself. We listened to a song on the way here, Shane and Shane, called Born to Die. And it's a recognition of the fact that this child was born to suffer the sins of the world. Simeon understood that a sword would come. Not only divide those who would find him a hope or a stumbling block, but a sword would pierce his side. And of course, the It is Christ's suffering by which salvation would come. So we celebrate and embrace Jesus and proclaim him because not only of his birth, but of his death. But even more, beyond even that, we move in joy to embrace and celebrate and proclaim Jesus as the Christ because of the second coming, which is promised to us. So we have the privilege to have received by revelation the same promise that Simeon received, that the Lord will return. We also can be patiently, humbly, devotedly waiting on the advent of Christ. We have the benefit of living on the, this side of his first advent, and we celebrate that today and tomorrow. But we can look even more longingly and expectantly of the second advent of Christ, the second coming, for he will return again. And with him, will be the ushering in of the new kingdom in which we will live forever with him. He will bring peace and reign perfectly. The government will be upon his shoulders. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace. Do you see how this moves people to joy and that joy moves people closer to Jesus? So when Simeon says in verse 35 that Jesus' birth is going to cause all hearts to be laid bare, that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed is exactly this, that when we consider the birth of Jesus tonight, this morning, tomorrow, as you're spending time with family, may the response of your heart align here with what we see in Mary and Joseph and in Simeon and Anna, that it would be humble, grateful, thankful even that what we try to bring to God is not what commends us to Him. That we would be righteous in our obedience to what He has asked of us and demanded of us. That we would be faithful in our devotion to God, willing to suffer 
minor or major inconveniences to meet with one another, to worship God. That we would be patient in the waiting of the fulfillment of His promises in our life as we expect the second coming. And that it would be marked by joy. Joy that overflows because we have embraced Jesus, because He has embraced us. That we would celebrate Jesus because of what He's done for us, not only in taking on flesh, but suffering and dying for our sins. And having been risen from the dead, knowing that He will come again, we proclaim that second coming. For all those who are waiting, weary, for the hope and the redemption, not just of earth, but their own souls. This is the consolation of the church. So remember that this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, uh, there is so much more, of course, that we see that our souls are lacking in the right response. At any given time, Lord, we may be not so patient. We may be not so devoted. We may be not so humble, not so righteous, not so joyful. I do pray that we would be reminded, God, and helped by your Spirit in these areas. And that this season, this, this evening, and this Christmas day, tomorrow, that we would have these responses. That like Anna and Simeon, we would know that in Christ we see the salvation of God. And that we move in joy to embrace and celebrate. And that our church would be marked with joy as a church that proclaims him to each other, to our neighbors, to our community and beyond. We thank you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. All sermons are Amen. released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.